Good morning. My name is Nick Kamiski. I am another one of the pastors on staff. I want to extend Peter's welcome. If my face is new to you, it's because it's my third Sunday, and a lot of your faces are new to me, but I'm glad to be here and uh, share God's word uh, with you. A couple weeks ago, I uh, watched a documentary on Netflix that I've been thinking a lot about. I didn't know Peter was going to share that about Marie Kondo, but apparently we watch a lot of television. Um, the documentary is called Fire. Are any of you familiar with it? It's the story of a sleazy entrepreneur named Billy McFarland and a musical genius named Ja Rule. That was, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Who team up to put on a music festival in the Bahamas. And they started by hiring a media team and flying a bunch of supermodels down to the Bahamas to take photos and make videos of the models uh, dancing and drinking and swimming with pigs. I kid you not, that is actually in the documentary. And they recruited influencers who were like, do you know what those are? They're like people who convince other people to buy things online to, uh, to promote the event. And their strategy was to create an event that epitomized the glamorous, exciting lifestyle a certain type of person wants to project on the internet. And it worked. That's the crazy thing. It worked incredibly well. Within days, thousands of people had spent millions of dollars to attend Fire Fest. There's just one problem. The people who were promoting the event had no idea how to put on a music festival in the Bahamas. Like, who was going to play? How were people going to get down there? What were they going to eat? What were they going to drink? Where were they going to go to the bathroom? Those fundamental questions they did not answer. And so the fire festival was a, a car crash in slow motion. Uh, yeah, cool. I guess that was a good line. Uh, and I'm obsessed with the documentary because it, it illustrates so many things about our cultural moment. Um, as much as anything, though, it is a, a case study in deception. One of the more enduring images from the documentary was the confused mass of attendees huddled together at the festival entrance. They were promised, and this is from the promo video, the best of music, food, art, and adventure on an island once owned by Pablo Escobar. They were now fighting over FEMA tents and cheese sandwiches in the parking lot of a Sandals resort. They had been deceived, and now they were stuck. In Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul uses this really surprising word when warning the church. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. That verb, it's a single word, to take captive, 
was very rare in ancient Greek, and it's the only time that verb gets used in the New Testament. And it suggests the possibility that this young, fragile church would be carried off as plunder by teachers, guiding them in a way of life that is not centered on Christ. And Paul deals directly with the false promises of this way of life. And I'm going to touch on that briefly, but first, what Paul does is really interesting. He doesn't attack what's wrong. He demonstrates why Christ and Christ alone is the way into the life that is truly life. And what he says, in effect, is that trying to find meaning and purpose and significance apart from Christ is like going to the fire festival. It looks sexy and alluring, perhaps, but it ends up being FEMA tents and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> and so we're going to look this morning at Paul's description of Christ and who we are in Christ, what is true of us in Christ. Uh, before we do, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it nourishes us and guides us and teaches us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us see and appreciate what we have been freely given in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, that, the reading, uh, it's pretty dense, and there's a lot of there there, so I can't, I'm not going to be able to get to everything that Paul says about what we have in Christ, but I do want to say three things very clearly. Jesus is life that is truly life, because in him you are forgiven, you are free, and you have been filled. You're, it's forgiveness, freedom, and fullness. First, forgiveness. Uh, second half of verse 13, if you have your bulletin, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Trespasses or sins, other translations. I want to try and speak to that concept of sin. Because I think we have people in 2019, a strange relationship with that word. Because on the one hand, we take moral problems very seriously. We're extremely concerned with racism and misogyny and threats to the environment and capitalist misbehavior. We take moral problems very seriously, and we are keenly aware that there are victims to such things. And this is good, because there are indeed victims to such things. On the other hand, I find myself, oftentimes, framing these problems as bad things bad people do out there. And it is rare, in my experience at least, for people to begin the conversation about some recognizable evil by naming themselves as a participant, or as a perpetrator of said evil. But what we see here in Colossians 2 is Paul, there's a great band I like, Titus Andronicus, they have this song, Fatal Flaw. He's saying, human beings have a fatal 
flaw. We're dead in our trespasses. The New Testament scholar James Dunn, he puts it like this, humankind in this world is not just weak or corruptible. There is an inescapable dimension of failure in transgression. We share in a pervasive out-of-jointness, frustration, and futility with the rest of creation. We're dead in our trespasses. That's a hard word. Thanks be to God, it is not the final word. Because out of the tragic impasse of humankind, the promise of forgiveness and absolution comes. God erases our entire history of screwing things up. And Paul conveys how definitive that act of forgiveness is with two mm, pictures, our word images. And they're foreign to us, so I'm going to try and explicate them quickly. First, Paul imagines this official document, a legal record that outlines how God intends for humankind to bear his image and to care for creation. And that document, in this imaginary world, bears our signature at the bottom. It's the ancient equivalent of an IOU. God says, I created you to bear my image and to care for creation. And so I am calling you to act like human beings, a certain measure of wholeness and integrity and justice and compassion. That is what God expects from us. And our missteps are actual instances of missing that mark condemn us. They say we're failures. And I think if we can be honest with ourselves, I think that's true that we do fall short of those wonderful ideals. Not all the time, and we're not all equally serial killers or something, but if we're totally honest, ruthlessly honest about who we are, and if we live up to the ideals that God lays out for us in his word, I think labels like failure are lazy, are indulgent, are arrogant, are self-righteous, are hypocritical, come to the fore, and I'm not putting any of those labels on you, but what I'm saying is that if those words have any measure of truth to them, they can be very hard to silence. What does God do? That document, Paul says, that God tears it up. He removes it from the scene. In fact, second picture, God nails it to the cross. When crucifixion took place in the ancient world, the crucifiers would pin an inscription to the cross announcing the charges against the crucified. It, this document condemned. It said, here is why this person must die. Here, though, in Paul's picture, it's the opposite. The inscription into the cross is our salvation. How so? 
Because, of course, the one who's on the cross. And this image of God nailing our accusations to the cross of Jesus is a, is a clear picture of what, it's kind of a $10 word, but what you sometimes read, uh, the substitutionary atonement. That's a, that's a very loaded term. And it can be misused or over-applied. But there are times when the Bible teaches us that Jesus, who was totally innocent, died so that we, who are guilty, might share in his innocence. So, zoom up a little bit. I'm asking this question, why Jesus and Jesus alone? And the first thing I want to say is that in Jesus, we have forgiveness. And those words like failure or lazy or indulgent or arrogant, those accusing voices can be silent because God tears those, that document up. God silences those accusations. We're forgiven in him. Second thing I want to say is that we're free. We're free. The Banjimi world, their last album, it's called Integrity Blues. It's a great CD. And there's a song on it called You're Free, if, as free as you can stand to be. Now that word, it, freedom, it doesn't actually appear in the passage. Paul never says, in Jesus we're free or something like that. But the idea of freedom is implicit in the way that Paul describes our salvation as occurring through circumcision. Now, I have to confess, I find this portion of the text pretty confusing. (laughs) This is the only time when Paul talks about the circumcision of Christ and the idea of being circumcised by Jesus is super weird. I think, though, that if we can, like, wade our way through this unfamiliar imagery, we'll see something profoundly liberating. I actually think there's a freedom, a word of freedom here. Okay, so let's start with what we know. You guys know what circumcision is, I think. We have a slide. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and uh, And in the Old Testament... Uh, in the Old Testament, the actual practice of circumcision, circumcision was instituted at the very beginning of the story to distinguish the people of God. If you were circumcised, it said, you are a beneficiary of God's promises, and you belong to him in this special way. Well, that practice of circumcision had quite obvious limitations. It only applied to half the population, and well, that's all I'll say about that. Um, and so, right, like almost immediately after circumcision as a practice was instituted, it, that word and the concept also began to be used metaphorically as a way to signify inner sanctity and devotion. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 30, God promises to circumcise the hearts of his people so that they would love God with all their heart and soul and walk in God's ways. In other words, circumcision of the heart entails not a striving and struggle in your walk with God, but an inner liberty 
and a love and a sincerity for God and what God wants from us. Now, Paul, you know, 2,000 years later, is thinking about those promises. And he says, in effect, that because of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of God's Spirit, that heart circumcision has taken place in all of us. And what he says, and this is where, honestly, it gets kind of confusing, is Paul says that profound transformation has happened in all of our hearts, full stop, when we were baptized. Now, have you seen anyone baptized? Of course you have. It doesn't look like that much happens. Like, it, it's, it's meaningful for the family and for the parents, of course, and there's cool pictures and all that kind of stuff, but you would be, you'd be forcing yourself into something if you were to say, oh my gosh, something profoundly changed about that screaming baby. It doesn't look like much, but in, in most Christian traditions, baptism is more than just a symbol. It represents the, the turning of the ages. And what Paul says is that when we are baptized, it is like we are, not like, it is a burial of sorts. We die with Jesus. And the chains of sin and corruption, which make it so difficult for us to image God with sincerity and integrity, those chains are broken. They die along with us. And when we come up out of the water, we rise with Christ. And the enlivening, humanizing influence of the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us walk in that freedom. So why does Paul talk about baptism here? Like, why does he bring it up? Because it, it's, I think it's worth asking that question. And I think this is where this idea of freedom really comes into play. So time out. This sermon has been a little dense. I promise it's about to get more applicable in a minute, okay? There was a false teaching that was circulating amongst the church in Colossae, and, and there's oceans of ink that get spilled on debating what exactly that false teaching was. We don't really know. But one thing we know is that those false teachers were claiming, in effect, that baptism was not enough. They were saying something to the effect of, baptism is great, but if you really want to grow in Christ, if you really want to mature and experience the goodness and the creativity that is in his name, then you got, you got some work to do. And Paul addresses these ideas head on. He says, in effect, well, the false teachers were saying, there's a, a calendar that you have to mark. There are certain days you have to observe as holy and you have to rest certain times. And there are certain foods that you can eat and that you should not eat. There was an overwhelming emphasis in this false teaching on human agency. What we do or don't do to bring us closer to God. And what I want to say is that such 
Anytime you're in a system where human agency, what you do or don't do to bring you closer to God, when that becomes the norm, that becomes imprisoning. It starts to kill you because you are either deluded into thinking that you're doing much more for God than you actually are doing, or you are just anxious or afraid all the time that you're not doing enough, that you aren't praying enough, that you haven't found God's will for your life, that you let your kids have too much screen time, that you never kiss dating goodbye, whatever like weird religious rules start to become so normative. They are, in effect, an attack against your baptism because what Paul says here is that the core of Christianity is what God does for you. You have been buried with Christ. Sin has been defeated, and you have been raised to newness of life. And that's enough. You don't need other things to supplement. Like, it's not like God does most of the work Like God died for you, and then you give up chocolate for Lent, and somehow that creates a devoted life. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. And me and Peter were talking about this at the beginning of the service. We actually have a very practical way for all of us to remember what God does for us in our baptism. And it's that weird font thing at the beginning. We cross ourselves, and we say, yes, I have been buried with Christ in baptism, and I've been raised to newness of life. It's not like name it and claim it. It's a reminder of what God has made true of us. And it can be a way of freeing ourselves from like the anxiety, pressure-inducing world that we live in. Okay. We're forgiven. We're free. And finally, we're filled. The, The final... And the most comprehensive reason why looking to anything besides Jesus is senseless is because Jesus makes us whole. The fullness of God is bodily, uh, gosh, I don't know what to say here, kept. That's probably heretical. Jesus is the fullness of God. And in him, we have been filled. Filled with what, you might say? That's actually a fair question. I think that in every other instance that Paul uses that verb in the passive voice, to be filled, he specifies like the object of the filling. He says, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, or to be filled with joy and peace and goodness and the fruits of righteousness. Here, though, Paul is deliberately vague and unspecific and absolute. You have been filled. Why? I think it's because Paul is not, does not want us to think about what we receive in this filling, but the one from whom we receive. Did, that, did I do that? Yeah, okay. Jesus is the fullness of God. And because we are united to him, All that we could ever want from God is given to us in him. So if you're you're tired and you're just holding on in Jesus, God's promises for you are sure. 
God's energy is at work powerfully in him. There's that, it's kind of cheesy, but it's a great song, the Waterdeep song, everything I ever wanted I found in you. If you're angry or apathetic or stuck or unmoored, wherever you're at this morning, in Christ, God has something for you. That's just what you need. You have been filled. I read a story this week about the Landau family in Teaneck, New Jersey. Teaneck, New Jersey is like five miles west of the George Washington Bridge, so it's like suburban New York City. Three brothers, Ned, Roger, and Stephen, grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. And there was a very strange painting that sat in their parents' dining room. It was a woman who was passed out, and two men were trying to revive her. And the story mentioned how the brothers were so embarrassed whenever they brought friends over because this very weird painting stood unexplained in their parents' dining room. The parents died. The painting went into the basement. They tried to sell it a couple times at a garage sale to no effect. Eventually, they got it looked at, and I kid you not, it was an early Rembrandt that was presumed to be lost and is worth $4 million. Now, this is not in the story. This is completely apocryphal. But imagine if one of those brothers was bringing a girl home and he wanted to impress her with his taste in fine art. And so he went to a museum gift shop and bought like a Mona Lisa print and nailed it to his bedroom wall. He thought he was being sophisticated and artistic. There was a Rembrandt painting in his living room, hidden in plain sight. Now, you know, not all of us are tempted by like formal religious systems besides Christianity. Some of us may be, but I think all of us, no, I know that all of us, are surrounded by alternative ways of approaching life that are driven by just different definitions of what is true and good and beautiful. And we, are, we feel the pressure of those different ways of answering those basic questions. And I think what Paul wants to say to us today, very simply, is that, you know, don't buy a cheap print of the Mona Lisa to impress the girl. You have a Rembrandt in your living room. In Jesus, you have forgiveness and freedom and fullness. So live in it. Final word. You know, there's this tension in the New Testament, between what's sometimes referred to as the already and the not yet. God has done already this wonderful thing for us, but that goodness has not yet been expressed in full. There's different ways of thinking about how to handle that. And I, I, my personal view is, hey, when the Bible talks about the already, and talks about what God has done for us in the past tense. It's like, just live in that. When the Bible talks about the not yet, deal with the tension. 
But this morning, the message is not about what God has not yet done or what you need to do to live into what God has done. It's simply this. You have been given wonderful things in Christ. So continue to walk in him, rooted, built up, established, and abounding in thanksgiving. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us stuck or alone, but you fought for us. You came for us. And even now, Lord, you are speaking to us through your word to assure us of what you've done for us. And so, Lord, whatever, to whatever degree my words have been true and helpful, I pray that you would confirm them, and that you would help us all live in that spacious place which your love has opened for us. In Jesus' name, amen.